and welcome to The Hive, a new conservation podcast. My name's Molly. And I'm Brian. We hope you'll enjoy hearing our conversations as much as we enjoyed having them. So we are back for episode seven of The Hive. And today we will be talking, Molly, about... We'll be talking about negative behaviours that can happen on site and the impacts that they can cause. Absolutely. Um, and it's quite good timing because obviously we've just had Easter weekend. So the, the weather, I was going to say, is warming up. But today it's gone freezing and it's been sleeting. Um, so it's not really fair to say that, but it, it will be warming up. And obviously our sites all across the UK will be getting busier. Um, so we thought we would just talk a little bit about um, what we went through as professionals last year because we we saw some we saw some stuff, didn't we? <laughs> we saw things we definitely don't want to see ever again but probably will <laughs> so we um we I've, I've moved um i've moved jobs now but molly and i were based on a busy site on the south coast um that's around about 160 hectares and has an estimated minimum of a million visitors a year but last year was obviously a you know anecdotally a huge increase on that so we saw um car parks overflowing and spilling out which had never happened before um and people arriving on site in droves at, at the point in time you'd usually expect people to be to be leaving um what would you say that the biggest issues that we found last year so i think the biggest increase in issues that we we had was definitely camping i think we had a few of those before but that was the biggest increase because of covid and things being shut and no one being able to stay anywhere or go on holiday we just had like absolutely hundreds it felt like of tents that we had to deal with almost on a daily basis obviously things like fires and barbecues which we we don't allow anywhere on our site um those were a big issue because they were just yeah it was happening all over the shop (laughs) it's like a takeaway (laughs) and we do you know on the flip side of that we also got a load of people that obviously weren't happy with that behavior happening and so we were dealing with with complaints we were dealing with the issues on one side and the complaints that that not enough was being done about it on the other um so you, you talked about an increase there so the figures were uh in 2019 we dealt with 22 um tents um and in 2020 we dealt with at least 85 um there, there were more um but there were many more people per tent as well than that um and some of the issues that we found them causing so there was one that i dealt with that displaced a skylark nest um so we have four breeding um pairs of skylarks in one of the fields on the reserve and one of the tents has pitched up in the middle of the night right where next to where she was nesting and she'd she disappeared now they didn't have a clue what harm they were causing they didn't have a clue what was around um they're apologetic um but they had crossed over a fence and walked halfway across the field to get to where they were uh people camping on the beach burying their poo in the sand as well quite a high number um and we've also got sand lizards and dunes which is where a lot of the the tents were based um what did you what did you notice about the uh people's like how people were as well I think it really varied because um, I think, well, for for one, I think we had the negative behaviours coming in cycles. Uh, It's not a pun. At the beginning, it was bikes. We had such a big issue with bikes and then these weird little electric-y things, um, which obviously then the locals really were were not not enjoying and that's what we got a ton of messages about so a lot of the time they would be really dismissive of you if they would listen to you they would uh 
maybe just ignore you or you'd get a few things shouted at you as they continued to cycle off or maybe they would get off and get back on and then try their luck again and then as you sort of moved into the warmer weather with the tents I think you could say that it was quite mixed Uh, I had quite a few groups usually teenagers who would as soon as they saw me start shoving stuff into their bags and start to to pack up and they'd be like oh I'm really sorry really sorry even though you know that they knew they shouldn't be there um at least they didn't chat back but I also had a lot of back chat a lot of just I didn't see signs um and lots of things where it's like well the signs were a one size and bright yellow with no barbecues no fires no camping and you've had all three so um (laughs) it was it wasn't a please get this checklist off while you're here it was a please don't um and I think just overall the behaviour and, and I, I guess the the mood was a bit different this year and, and I I feel anecdotally that it was a lot more aggressive than I've had before. Um, you always get aggressive people and you get people, especially when they're being, I guess when they feel a bit guilty about what they've done and they know they've done wrong and they're trying to sort of push the other way because they know that they've done wrong, they're just going to try and outshout you. <laughs> um, and I guess that, that then led to us wearing a body camera as well in the summer which we've never done and and I would never really want to I felt like an enforcement officer which I'm I'm not uh I'm very bad at confrontation so um yeah it wasn't it wasn't for me the the negativeness <laughs> so it's an interesting year really because obviously people have been told what to do um basically to to lock themselves inside their houses until that point hadn't they so those those people were dealing with you know a global pandemic probably some anxiety probably some angst about being locked up as well and then they come out to enjoy themselves and then the first thing they see is is you and me telling them not to have fun so we were probably the last thing that was on their mind at that at that point um and there was also an incident uh, quite a well-known national incident with a, a government employee um driving quite some distance to uh what appeared to be in breach of of the rules everybody else was expected to follow. And that certainly, you know, that was certainly mentioned back to me by people I was talking to about as well. I don't know if you you have that thrown back at you at all, but it was kind of... I didn't think I actually did, no. Um, No. Or I wasn't listening to what they were saying, (laughs) so I was (laughs) just trying to get them to stop what they were doing. So, yeah, that was, it was, it was a, you know, it was a difficult thing to to ask people to follow what seemed like what's you know what seemed like petty rules um but basically all we were trying to do was protect things like skylarks sand lizards um adders natterjack toads um and all the all the you know generalist wildlife that lives in those areas as well we're just trying to keep the nature reserve um a reserve for nature so um it was quite, you know, there's a lot written at the time about how much people were using the outdoors, um, which was quite nice. You know, there were there were positive elements of it as well. So that was that was great to see. Um, so obviously there are increases all over the place. And yes, there was an increase in, in negative behaviours, of course, but there was an increase in people. So undoubtedly, we also saw an increase in positive behaviour because the numbers went up and we definitely spoke to, you know, there's more people we didn't speak to than, than those we did. So by default, there must have been more people um, treating the places correctly. So that was great. But if you look nationally, um, then there's been instances, you know, I remember seeing an article by Isabella Tree about NEP and the lapwings being flushed away by people leaving pathways, um, areas of Dartmoor suffering from wild camping. Um, obviously we had Wareham Forest, huge area of Heathland went up in smoke here because of a barbecue and the same in Chobham on a piece of Heath in, um, 
in Surrey and then also obviously in Scotland they're having issues and on Snowdon as well um but we thought for this episode we would we would hunt around a bit and so we have um which is not unusual for us we have an international guest as well on this so we'll, we'll come to our guests um one at a time as as per um so I think probably should we introduce our first guest yeah let's go for it Okay, so um, Professor Rick Stafford was appearing on our first episode of The Hive um, way back um, when we all seemed a lot younger. Um, he spoke to us at the time about uh, careers in conservation, but we invited him to discuss with us what sort of impacts uh, increased negative behaviours can have on a local level. So um, let's hear from Rick now. Positive and negative behaviours. What changes have you noticed during, during the lockdown? I think initially though that sort of role of parks and beaches and things was, was incredibly important. I mean the the one positive about the lockdown was the weather was actually fantastic pretty much the whole time. Um, so you know it, it was a chance to get outside even if it was only for an hour a day initially but you know you could see the number of people. I live quite close to Paul Park um, and I think a lot of people initially took up running. Um, I kept it up until it got really hot and I couldn't do it anymore because that was my excuse. It was too hot. <laughs> so, so I think I think the use of those spaces initially worked really well. Um, I think as the lockdown measures began to ease, I think we saw a lot more um, sort of abuse of those those places to some extent, particularly beaches. You know, I think everybody saw pictures of Durdle Door and of Bournemouth, for example, on the news. It's, it's, it is difficult because obviously people weren't allowed to go anywhere else and you want to go somewhere, you want to meet up with your friends you haven't seen for ages, even if you're not really supposed to be doing that. You can't go to the pub, you can't go somewhere and then stay in a hotel because they were shut, so you, know, you actually end up camping on the beaches and drinking. I don't think that was necessarily helped by the fact that uh, toilets tended to be shut at five o'clock or sometimes not open at all. That sort of brings out the worst in everyone's behaviour, I guess. Um, I don't know. I think I think people. I think initially there was a huge sort of respect for those public places, um, and real, really people people were really really valuing them. Um, that did that did continue, but at the same time there were then probably enough people who who weren't necessarily there to enjoy the space, but were there to essentially socialise and um, use it as a space for how they would normally have had a good time, um, which was which was a shame because I think, you know, the amount of rubbish and things which were left. Do you think negative behaviours on, on nature reserves is a, is a real issue going forward? Um, or do you think there's much bigger issues to, to worry about? I think it can, I think it, it can be an issue, yeah. Um, at a global scale, I guess, you could argue that almost whatever happens by British people on a nature reserve is probably going to have a relatively minor effect. Um, but certainly at a local level, you know, if if things carry on in that, you know, in that way, and I guess some of that's about numbers go into places as well. Um, some some places just weren't geared up for that sort of number of people. Then, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's going to start, you know, you're going to see erosion of key habitats. You're going to see more disturbance events. You're going to see all sorts of problems and it is going to affect biodiversity. And, you know, those those habitats are probably, you know, 
I hate the term carbon accounting, really, but they, they probably are quite useful even in terms of carbon accounting, in terms of the amount of sort of offset and taking carbon out of the atmosphere. They're probably one of the key, pla- you know, one of those key places. So if they're not properly properly protected and people don't respect them, I think there is there is an issue there. Okay, thank you, Rick. I think um, he brings up some good points, especially from a visitor point of view seeing as because we've probably got quite biased points of view as people who physically work on the sites and he's obviously got the scientific knowledge to back up things that he he knows about and also he reads about and researches but also his actual on the eye on the ground um visiting sites seeing what 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 changed and and the impacts yeah and i guess the other thing is as well is that it kind of you know when you compare any loss of habitat or disturbance to wildlife in this country compared to what might be going on in another part of the world on a much larger scale it could always be made to sound petty but you know we haven't got a lot left in in this country you know the 118th most wildlife depleted country in the world so just letting a bit more slip away um when we could we could work to solve it doesn't seem to be an argument worth having so our next guest is our international guest This is um, Eric Kramer-Webb from the Joshua Tree National Park, and he's going to give us a little bit of his interpretation about what's happened, especially over COVID and and, and a bit pre, I think, as well, just to talk about the negative behaviour scene across the pond over in uh, California. So um, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, So I have been living in Josh Tree for 21 years or so. And I've been a full-time rock climbing guide uh, the whole time. I moved here for the rock climbing. I used to come down with my buddies and we would go over, um, you know, New Year's. And then as far as the school, I run the school with my wife, Teresa Walsh. And um, she got me my first guiding job when I first moved here uh, in 99. So she's um, really knows what she's doing as well. Um, And we've got a a 15-year-old in a straw bale house that we built. And that's where I'm talking to you from right now. Obviously, Joshua Tree sounds, well, you went out there for climbing. So I'm guessing there's lots of other recreational stuff. And that's obviously what people were using it for when they trashed it. Maybe mm-hmm. not the ones you won. Um, but what about the wildlife? Have you got spe- any special wildlife? Bighorn sheep are so incredible. Joshua Tree ones in particular, it's, a, it's an endangered herd that is suffering from uh, a, a variety of stresses. We could get into that. Um, and they're just unique in their ability to negotiate this terrain that is world famous terrain. Like we all want to go to Josh tree to check out the boulders and the Joshua trees and nobody really sees the sheep hardly at all. The, the, the big conflict that always comes up is the dogs because dog lovers are not out to get the bighorn sheep. That's not when you when you get up in the morning and you're like, I'm going to take Fido for a walk. You're not thinking, yeah, we're going to get those bighorn sheep, aren't we, Fido? Right. That's not what you're thinking. Right. The dog owners are not they have nothing against the bighorn sheep and they don't realize what's going on. Um, So the bighorn sheep evolved. Let's see. So the predators be the mountain lions, um, the coyotes, the wolves. um, So so that canine smell. So when the bighorn sheep smells the urine or feces of the dog that you took on the walk on a trail, you're not supposed to bring the dogs on the trail, leash or no leash. The dogs are not allowed to be on the trails in Joshua. They're supposed to be on the road 
within 100 feet of a road or a campsite or a group uh, day use area, picnic area, that type of thing. So um, that scent lingers for up to a year later to their noses. We wouldn't be able to smell it. And it totally freaks out the bighorn sheep. And they're like, okay, this is not a safe place to be. We're out of here. And so those areas are just that they feel safe are getting encroached upon, right? Um, so I think it's an education thing. I mean, like people who own dogs, they like animals, you know? So that's the irony, right? Like there's, that is, and honestly, like a, like a dog is a way that many people connect to nature, which, you know, I don't want to be a snob. You know, it's easy for me to be like, oh, well, it's more pure to like go out in the big mountains and, you know, see wildlife. But, you know, that's kind of an elitist attitude. Um, I don't think people mean to harden the bighorn sheep. They don't realize what's going on. So how do we get that message out there, I think, is the, is the challenge, you know. And it's also like you're not going to see them probably. Like if you're the very first person to get up in the morning on the Barker Dam Trail, First thing, you know, for any other, the first people come and they scare away the sheep, right? So then once the last people leave for the evening, then the sheep come in, they can water in the, in the night, and then the people come in the morning and they leave, right? So that would be your best bet, but still odds would be against it, right? You still probably wouldn't see one, okay? Um, so 99% of people come to Josh Tree, more than that, don't see the bighorn sheep. I'll never forget 95 when I came down and that was my first taste of a shutdown. So we had climbed uh, intersection rock on our very first climb of our, you know, week long trip. And then uh, we're, we're on, on the summit and the ranger gets on the bullhorn, get down, the park is closed. I'm like, what? Is he kidding? So we had to leave and, and then we went to, you know, some BLM land on the south end of the park with some horrible rock climbing on it. So that left a bitter taste in my mouth. Oh, that was because uh, that was over not wanting to spend for healthcare, education, and the environment. So that was why they shut it down in 95. Um, I don't have all the details on that one, but that's what I'd read recently. That, that was the reason we had the shutdown in 2013. And that was a doozy because, you know, that was two weeks, so 16 days, prime time, high season, and they closed the gates. And as they should, if they're going to shut the government down, which they never should, but if they do, they should close the gates. Um, so they did close the gates in 2013, and that was awful for all the folks who wanted to go visit Josh Tree. And um, so at least the place was protected. Right. So it wasn't ravaged. It was more of an economic impact to the town and the local guide services. We recovered. Look, Joshua Tree is humming along. OK, then the latest shutdown in, you know, 2018, 2019. Um, well, that was a doozy, too. And that one was 35 days. So an unprecedented length. Wow. And it they kept the gates open which is a colossal error. I think the administration, the Trump administration wanted to, was concerned about people getting pissed off that they couldn't visit their national parks, right? So they kept the gates open and then the parks got trashed, but they didn't get the, well, the, the, the bighorn sheep lobby apparently didn't get a lot of time in Congress. 
surprising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, who's gonna who's gonna speak for the animals and the plants and the trees? Uh, so that that's sort of the the, the silenced voice out there. Um, so it it's just it it's crazy how they can use a shutdown as a a bargaining tool. Uh, and it's just cutting your nose off to spite your face. I mean, we're just poorer as a nation because of it. When you go to the the park, the national parks of the Western U.S., most of them are in mountainous regions with forests. And so how are you going to drive through a forest? There has to be a road. If there's no road, then there's going to be a, de- a log that will stop your car. And you'll only get a couple hundred feet, okay? Because there's just fallen logs in most, they're just everywhere, right? But in the desert parks, what's to stop you, right? I mean, you got some sand, okay, so you might get stuck in the sand. I mean, they put in curbs on a lot of places, but there's a lot more road that needs to get curbed. Um, You can still jump the curb, you can still just drive right over it. It's funny how the curb actually prevents most people from driving over. It it is kind of funny, like, that you put a curb in, there's a psychological thing where, where people go, oh, honey, we're not supposed to go there because there's a curb. So they need, to, they need to put more curbs in because people drove off-road and then they, they just can't, you know, made, made up their own camping. They built their own firing. They chopped down whatever vegetation was there. The reports of Josh trees getting chopped down were exaggerated during the shutdown. That wasn't the, the main issue. I don't know if a single Josh tree got chopped down. I think what, ha- what I heard really was that someone backed into a Joshua tree. But I don't want un- to downplay the damage. It's just that if you talk about a Josh tree getting ch- ch- uh, chopped down, that's really sexy and grabs headlines. But really the main impact was the uh, – the vehicles, okay, just driving over. There was like 11 miles of new road that got created. Um, 11 you know, miles. Just, wow. Just people just driving off into into the middle of nowhere and just having a bonfire. And then, you know, the rocks get scarred with the um, soot on the boulders and, you know, and people are cutting down vegetation. You're not supposed to collect the vegetation. In fact, I think in pretty much every national park, you're supposed to like buy or bring your own firewood. And... It, and it's funny because when you go to campgrounds in national parks, there's like not a single, like anything. There's not a leaf. There's not a pine needle. <laughs> it's just like scoured, <laughs> you know, because everyone's desperate trying to light a campfire. So there's nothing at all. Um, but in Joshua, there's so little vegetation to begin with. So in my mind, as a conservationist, to look at these like, haggard bushes that are barely hanging on right and go oh let's use that for our campfire i'm like oh that's not going to take very many fires before they're all gone um so yeah people were just you know dispersed camping going for it um happy that they were thrilled to have no rules you know people are tired of signs and rules and they always have to do what the man tells them to do and they're like, ha, ah, okay, we can just go out and just do our thing. Because there's a perception of the desert being empty, which when you live in the desert, you're like, whoa, there's a lot of cool things here, right? It's not empty at all. There's, there's space. But I think it was Edward Abbey that called that space between plants almost like the, the border around a, like, like a picture frame, you know, or a mat. Like, like they all have their little special area right 
So they're all, each plant is framed. In, in other words, Edward Abbey, you know, he didn't like jungles because to him, a rainforest was everything all on top of each other. It was too messy, right? I think rainforests are cool, but this is, you know, for him, the desert was, was so cool because each plant had its special spot. And, you know, there is something really neat about that. Um, so to just like, you know, burn one of these bushes, uh, I'm a big fan of the dead plants. Sometimes the dead plants are really gorgeous. And you look at like an old log or just a dead bush. And you think now if Ansel Adams were here, he could create the most beautiful photograph you've ever seen from this dead wildflower or whatever it is. And so people, I think, feel impunity. It's like, well, you know, don't step on the plants. Yeah, but that one was dead. How do you know it was dead? I mean, have you ever seen a bush that looked dead and it grew back? I have a lot of times. Okay. Maybe it's dead now because you stepped on it. Okay. So the wind blows the seeds and a lot of wind, wind uh, dispersal method for seeds. And so they stop when they hit a bush dead or alive. And then here you have a little shady area that stays moist and a little bit of protection from the wind. And lo and behold, that's where the wildflowers grow. So every bush is like a wildflower factory, De a dead bush, living bush. They all, they all provide this function, right? And then you get these clumps of soil that grow up these mounds around the bushes, like a creosote. Um, so, so, so it's like one plant helps the others, right? And so it's like one creates the foothold and then they all kind of latch onto that. Um, and, and it's pretty neat. So, um, you know, I don't think people, look, I grew up playing soccer. You tell me, don't step on the plants. It's like, well, I'm playing soccer. Like, what do you mean, don't step on the plants? I'm playing ball on a grassy field, right? And it feels really good. I don't feel guilty about that, right? But the grass is, it's man-made, right? It's meant for that. And so to, to have this mentality of like, okay, don't step on the plants, um, it's going to take a while. And so the desertification of Joshua Tree is, is a thing. Um, the, just the trampling of the soil and the denuding of the vegetation. So these dead zones just get bigger and bigger. I mean, as a rock climber, I don't want to pretend we don't have impact, right? So you'll get large groups of climbers who will gather around boulders and, and crags and, and create, you know, a dead zone of just flat dirt where there used to be, you know, native vegetation. Um, by the way, when you don't have plants, guess what? You don't have animals, you have fewer animals, right? So we don't always make that connection. Like a bush, we used to be here, but we don't even realize that a bush was there. And then, well, there was animals that used to depend on that bush and where did they go, right? So it's a ripple effect. And I don't think people really see all those, those factors. Um, they don't see the fragility, you know, just how, um, uh, how delicate and fragile it is. Um, and the rangers are overwhelmed, okay? They just, they're underfunded. They've got $50 million of unfunded backlog maintenance projects, okay? That's a mountain of work that doesn't have a budget behind it. So they're way behind um, in protecting the resource. And honestly, I would say my perception is the protection of the resource, they're doing what they can with one hand tied behind their back. Their, their intentions are good. We have a fantastic um, 
superintendent named David Smith, and he is, you know, committed to saving this place with every ounce of his uh, uh, soul. And so I really appreciate what he's doing, but there's only so much he can do. Um, his, his hands are tied. Um, and so, you know, I mean, during, during the shutdown, he really couldn't say much, right, with the administration that was hell-bent on just, you know, keeping everything open so that Americans didn't resent the shutdown and so he could just keep pushing for his wall. Um, and, and, like, where's the preservation of Josh Tree? Like, it's just, it's, it's a treasure that would take, that you could destroy in a weekend. That's all it takes you'd ever come across the same kind of attitude with people who just genuinely when it came down to it could not understand what they were doing wrong or why it was an issue sure yeah but a lot of times you know they might think it over like they it's hard to admit that you screwed up okay so everybody wants to save face so yeah, they're gonna. The first instinct is to defend yourself, right? And so, okay, so they're gonna defend themselves. Now, are they gonna chew on it? What you said, right? Maybe. Hope that's what you're hoping, right? Yeah, they're like, sure. We're all hoping that they're gonna be like, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. And that happens sometimes, right? And then you're like, hey, I'm the hero, right? And you feel good about yourself, and you're like wishing it was always that way. Um, and, and I feel like I'm getting more of those. Actually, I'm getting a bigger percentage of those. Um, but I don't interact with everyone because I don't have the, uh, like, I got to be ready. The way I look at it, like, I got to be ready to just, like, do it the right way. I'm going to do it the right way or I'm not going to do it at all. And so sometimes I'm in a bad mood. And it's going to come out bad and there's going to be a snarky tone in my voice and it's going to backfire and they're just going to do it to spite me. Spite is a thing. Don't underestimate spite, right? You got people that didn't want to trash it, but now they want to trash it just because you were an asshole. So, you know, it's, you can, you can, it can totally blow up in your face. Um, so if I feel like if I don't have the patience to really like do it the right way in a way that preserves their dignity, then maybe I'm just like, I don't know. I'm going to pick my battles. Like I, I just, you know, I can't do each and every one, but I would say this, we are the Rangers. Okay. If you're going to wait for a Ranger, good luck because they got four law enforcement Rangers for a park that's the size of Rhode Island. Okay. I bet they got more than four cops in Rhode Island. Um, I'm talking about law enforcement rangers. Okay. So we have interpretive rangers and then our LE rangers, you know, they, they look and act like cops. Okay. That's, you know, so we, we need both kinds um, because interpretation just isn't always enough. I've been in situations in the national park where I was like, I don't even feel safe telling these people, you know, the rules they're breaking because uh, someone's going to pull a knife on me. I've been in situations like that. Well, I'm just like, I'm just going to call it in. Um, but to have those lengthy discussions, like at, at Barker Dam on the weekends, on busy weekends, they're now, it's one of the most popular nature trails in Josh Street. 
they put volunteers at the um, trailhead and they're just there to just meet and greet. They're looking for dogs like, oh, hey, you know, you're, you're not, can't take a dog on the trail. Okay. You know, here's a road. You can go walk, take a dog on a walk on this road right over here. That's huge. It's like offering the alternatives. Okay. So before you get in and tell them no, think of what your yes is, right? Like, okay, this is what these people would really love doing and it would be fine. So, you know, like thinking about what, what is, what's a good outcome. So it's win-win instead of just a lose situation. Right. How do you think um, that people respond to, to volunteers as opposed to being members of staff? Do you think that comes across more powerfully? I think it depends on the person. I mean, some people just need, you know, some, some people need law enforcement. Um, but I think for the vast majority of people that, that the, the softer approach is the way to go. What um, advice or inspiration or maybe lessons learned you could give to people who work in conservation currently, or maybe they really want to work in conservation and they're looking for those next steps? Oh, well, so, you know, like the upward spirals and downward spirals, you know what I mean? Like um, the down, like classic downward spiral would be like where you cut the switchback, right? So you're walking on the switchbacks on the trail to go up the hill, right? And then you just cut straight down and on the way down, right? And then the water just goes straight down and erodes. And then just a couple people cutting the switchback channels the water and then the water just gullies it out deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and it just one small act by a couple people ex- causes a, a, you know, a ripple effect, a domino effect, a downward spiral, but there's a lot of upward spirals too. Right. So, you know, if you can figure out how to put a few stones to block that cut off so that people are taking the, the proper trail, then the water, you know, doesn't run off and helps to promote plant growth. And then those plant plant growth, perpetuates more plants to come in and more wildlife comes in and more species and just it just builds upon itself so you know we can get overwhelmed by the immensity of the task you know when we think about global warming and climate change it's like and I drive a car it's just like and there's no way I can't drive a car and still have anything assembling my life uh and it's it's overwhelming right you're like what do I do um, so I try to look at those, look for those little opportunities where like, okay, if I put my shovel right here and I move one scoop of dirt in a very well thought out and planned location, that one shovelful could cause this water to go this way now. And that is going to lead to a bunch of positive changes because now that water's going into where my tree is, you know, like permaculture, right? Trying to capture the water well, i guess in the uk it's so different you got you got more water you know what to do with right but here, <laughs> at times yeah <laughs> but you know the the arid you know arid western states right so it's really it's a big deal is, is trying to preserve the the soil and not have and just maximize the use of the water that we have you know as it gets drier and drier um so so just trying to look for for you know small actions that we can take that have positive ripple effects and also in your interactions with other people too, because, you know, if you, if you take it upon yourself to really figure out how you can have the positive interaction with the people who are doing something they probably shouldn't be doing. But if you can somehow like, it's so hard to do, I'm not saying I can do it consistently, but sometimes I can pull it off where you 
you managed to put in the plug for whatever they were doing that wasn't quite right, but you did it in a nice way that everyone was smiling by the time you said goodbye. And you feel really good about that. And then they're going to pass it on, right? So that is a positive ripple right there because they're going to remember, you know, they thought you were cool. They're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I did hear something on 60 Minutes that was related to that or whatever. And they're going to pass it on. And so there you go with one small act, you know, an intentional, mindful act, right? Where you're really thinking about how your tone of voice and your body language and all that stuff, not an impulsive act, not an emotional act, right? Not a spur of the moment, just like you're filled with rage and you go in there and you blow steam. <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, so I'm just I'm looking for for those small actions that you can take that are gonna, gonna you know have a positive ripple effects moving forward. And that that seems to help me mentally, you know, uh, just feeling like there is hope. Because if you don't have hope, what are you here for? I mean, <laughs> what are you wasting your time? Like, right? Like, if you're gonna be here, that means you have hope. I just I refuse to live like I had. A, I have a child. Of course, I have hope. Okay, if I had no hope, I wouldn't be putting people into this earth. Okay, um, so yeah, I mean it, it's it's going to be tough, but I I feel like um, we have to you know uh, just um, you know treat each person with respect that we meet out there, no matter how judge how we feel about their behavior. Thank you, Eric, for that. It's um, it's really interesting to see um, a comparison of, of what is going on across the world um, and the experience in the Joshua Tree being no different to that experienced by some sites over here. So it's not it's not an us problem. It's a it's an everywhere problem, um, but it's a problem with a, a solution, which is to engage with people. And I really liked the way that Eric um, sort of gave us the perspective to engage with people in a more mindful way. Um, that perhaps if what they're doing is minor and you're in a bad mood, then there are some cases that you might not want to deal with with people um, in that sort of mood because you just leave a leave a bad impression. So you're not necessarily going to change behavior. You're just going to change where they're, where they're doing it or maybe get smacked in the face. I think he brought up some some really important points and it's things that we've seen. It's just on a different scale. Just, you know, like we mentioned about the, the site, the sizes of the sites and the difference between, you know, the site that we manage and the amount of visitors that we have. And if you scaled that up to the amount that they have, um, obviously they do have then a lot more quieter areas and areas that probably aren't as disturbed. But, you know, when when people were driving and creating new roads and new pathways, and I think the effects from the, that they mentioned about the dogs on the Longhorn sheep as well, the fact that they know that they're there, even if, even if they're, they're, being, they're under control, it really makes you think about, you know how much does wildlife is wildlife affected by our presence or by our pets presence even if they're sticking to the paths and and they are abiding by what what we ask them to do um i think it, it just it sort of sows some seeds into thinking about things bigger picture and, and actually thinking about how we do impact the wildlife when we um when we visit these lovely places yeah, it's an interesting one with dogs in particular as well. Studies from around the world, so there's a, a study in Australia that showed that dogs um, did reduce abundance and diversity of birds, even when being walked um, on a lead through woodland habitats. And another one in Spain last year that looked at impacts on nesting birds um, on beaches. Um, and they showed significantly that dogs do not um, run away from things. Sorry, birds are not disturbed off their nests by things like passing aircraft. Um, but almost entirely i think something like 76 percent of the time they were flushed off their nest 
by dogs because dogs been a, a, a predatory instinct in birds that isn't isn't reflected in anything else so it's quite significant and this is only where we know the studies have been done of course you know mm. there's probably or possibly you know more effects that we don't don't know of yet so it's all these all these little things all add up to big things for certain species and the the, the case of the bighorn sheep is is one of them should we um should we move on to our last guest Okay, so uh, she featured in our engagement um, episode, so two episodes ago. So Lucy McRobert is back to talk to us about how she saw the um, the behaviours playing out in uh, natural open spaces uh, during lockdown. So Lucy. So my opinion, first of all, is that it's not going to go anywhere. I think we are looking for the next two to three to four years at a general public in the UK that is more likely to stay in the UK um, whether that's for their own health reasons or whether that's because the cost of flights goes up um, or whether it's just because they've rediscovered the beauty of the UK and they actually want to see more of it rather than flocking to the same old spot in South Spain um, I think we're going to see a lot more of it I personally am in favour <coughs> of people going and visiting these spaces I know that there are risks and I have absolutely no doubt that both of you have encountered this on a first-hand level uh, which is the overrunning of places with too many people and also with a certain level of bad behaviour associated with that so littering people not understanding that there's no toilets people not understanding that they can't have a barbecue people not understanding that they can't go wild camping or play football on a triple si there have been huge problems surrounding people visiting these sites. The thing that I find scarier, though, and I, I really was quite horrified at this in the middle of last summer, is the narratives that were put out by some conservation organisations who claim to be very forward looking, who claim to champion inclusivity, who claim to champion diversity, and who claim to want to reach out beyond the typical white, middle-aged, middle-class audience to reach different groups, the working classes, uh, visible ethnic minorities, um, children, young people. They, they say they want to reach these groups, but actually the message loud and clear that I read last year was go home, you're not wanted. You don't know how to use these places. You don't appreciate them, so you go home. And those narratives at times were borderline racist. They were definitely classist. And it was quite scary, actually, to see organisations that I've always had quite a lot of at least benefit of the doubt spouting these. And it was because they were overwhelmed. They were scared. There were suddenly there were new people here. And with those new people came new things that they had to deal with that they hadn't had to deal with before. And they weren't prepared. Uh, they weren't prepared in part because Boris Johnson gave them the same amount of time to prepare all of the opening of their nature reserves and their national parks, etc., as they did for the general public to plan their holidays, which was about three days notice. So people weren't ready. Um, the land managers weren't ready. The signage wasn't in place. The car parks hadn't been tended to because everyone had been in lockdown. But on the other side of that, I think it's something to be celebrated. We saw people who had never thought to visit a nature reserve before, who had never thought to visit a national park before had never thought to visit a beauty spot before flocking to these places because they craved 
the outdoors. They had been locked away. They felt isolated. They were scared and they sought comfort in the British countryside. And to me, that gives me hope that this is not a lost cause. We don't just have to speak to the same 1.5 million people every time. We can go beyond that and we can speak to more people and they do care. We are not banging our heads against a brick wall, but we have got to change our narratives. We have got to change our reactions. We've got to temper our reactions. It's just like you said, um, when someone takes to Facebook and they rant, and that's what we saw happening is conservationists backs against the wall, workloads through the roof, seeing their nature reserves trashed. And rather than thinking, right, hit pause, close the gates for a day because we need a bit of time just to figure out how we're going to deal with this. They took to Twitter and Facebook and the media to vent their frustrations and it was nasty. It came across by some organisations as really bad. And I could understand why people would turn their backs on those organisations forever if you felt like that was being targeted at you. I totally get that. Um, But I hope that it didn't get to that for most people. I think a certain amount of common sense is involved. Um, I know there's been issues at my local nature reserve. um, And I I saw some people there with a nice family, two young lads taking their scooters and a football on. And I kind of was chatting to the mum and I just said, "Where, where are you planning to scooter? And she said, oh, well, they always take the scooters on walks. And I was like, well, it's not really suitable. And it's not really suitable for a football either. And she was like, well, it's just like the park, isn't it? And I was like, no, it's it's not. It's not like the park. And then you're trying to explain about the importance of bee orchids and why your kids can't kick a football over the bee orchids. And it's hard. They're hard conversations. But there's also so many opportunities we know or I believe that engagement is incredibly important and we know that there's new audiences coming into these places. We also know that there's a massive unemployment crisis. So let's employ people to actually do the engagement on nature reserves rather than relying on volunteers who typically come from a category of people now highly at risk or shielding. Let's get unemployed people, give them jobs, give them training and get them doing the engagement on nature reserves. Let's employ more people to inspire people, to show people how to use these landscapes, to show people how to enjoy them. It's not all about ecology, but we can all take enjoyment in different ways, but the infrastructure's got to be there. And I also believe that we can fence off the most sensitive and precious of places. But if you do that, you have to say no one is welcome. You cannot say you can come you can come in because you are the right type of person. It has to be open to everyone or open to no one, in my opinion, because that's the kind of society that I want to live in. I don't want to live in a society that says, oh, you're white, middle class, you've got a National Trust sticker in the back of your Range Rover. You're probably not going to pick any flowers or drop your litter. You can come in, but no, no, you can't in your Corsa. I don't want to live in that society. I want to live in a society that says nature is for all or nature is for no one. Yeah, it's the usual thing. If you've got a pair of binoculars, then you belong here. If you don't, then why Why are you here? <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. That's, that's a, such a great answer, Lucy. Um, I just nodded along to the whole of that, really. I think that we, we do, you know, we got caught out. And there was some there was some bad behaviour, but bad behaviour has yeah. always, always been there. And there was a lot of people doing things that were against 
bylaws mm-hmm. that aren't well advertised but they genuinely by and large molly i most people didn't know what they were doing wrong and were often quite horrified to find that what they were doing was causing a harmful effect on anything they just hadn't considered the fact that sand dunes hold sand lizards and that they might be frying the eggs underneath by sticking a a barbecue on it because to them it was a it was a lovely beach and to me there's been like a ticking time bomb for a few years now of kind of government and a lot of bodies pushing the idea of outdoor space is a great place to go for physical and mental health, which it is, and that's a great message to sell. But at the same time, cutting funding to the organisations that are managing those spaces and providing the engagement. And to me, it's got to go hand in hand. If you're encouraging use, then you should be also providing money, just like you said, to employ people, to help people understand how they how they should you know, treat nature reserves and why they are different than parks. Absolutely. I mean... <laughs> Even simple things that we all know about, like interpretation boards, the amount of times I see bad interpretation and people wonder why it isn't read. So, um, for example, uh, I think we make far too many assumptions about people. On the North Norfolk coast, there was issues uh, with little birds nesting on beaches. So ring plover, birds like that, um, little terns nesting in areas that have got a few posts in the ground and a small piece of plastic tape around them that looks a bit like a police dead body area type thing police line do not cross etc and then there's a sign in the ground that's very complicated that says ring plovers nesting here do not disturb etc etc we've already made an assumption there that's fundamentally wrong for most people that people a know what these birds are and b that they would even consider that birds nest on the ground because to the vast majority of people birds nest in trees so the moment you say there's a bird's nest on the ground they don't believe you they literally do not believe you and it's not because they're thick it's not because they're ill-educated or anything like that it's because they've never encountered it before it's completely outside of their understanding as are many things in ecology. We're always finding things out about wildlife and going, God, really, is that true? Um, And that's like the highest level of expertise. So you have to start from where people are. And sometimes it can just be about changing the signage. You don't need to explain what these birds are. All you need is a picture and a few words underneath that just say, I'm raising my babies here. Please give me some space. Because then you're using a baby and people understand that mothers instinctively understand what it is to be a mother trying to protect her children. And that is a very powerful narrative. Saying ringed plovers nesting on beach, people go, don't be so stupid. Birds don't nest on beaches. Or or where's the trees? Yeah, where's the trees? (laughs) There's no trees here. So this can't be replying to me because I'm not near a tree so I'll have my barbecue here and what's this annoying piece of tape in my way pull it down it's not people trying to cause destruction to the natural world it's people behaving in a way that they've always behaved whether that was in a park in a town centre or a park in a city centre you're asking them to apply that to a new landscape with an ecological framework that they don't understand so you have to pull on other strings to help them interpretation is important proper signage is important but most of all it is about having people there in uniforms because people respond to uniforms uniforms are seen as authority even if it's just polo shirts with logos on them you need those people there to have 
friendly, constructive chats with people. Show them plovers on your phone. Get your phone out and say, look, this is what's happening here. Get a pair of binoculars. Go, look, there's a little baby over there. And people go, oh, God, because they don't want to kill someone else's baby. That would be horrifying to the vast majority of human beings. But if you you have to le- you have to learn those narratives and you have to tell the stories differently. Don't stick up an A4 sheet of paper with size 12 Calibri font all over it because people aren't going to read it. Thank you, Lucy, for coming back and rejoining us to to talk about that. Um, I thought it was really interesting about the the messaging in particular, Molly. That's something obviously you're dealing with, you know, still. Um, so what was your feelings on on how we go about messaging with people? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a really important thing that we do need to up our game on, um, especially with messaging and how we actually do talk to people and, and what we want them to do. You know, what is our outcome from the messaging that we're, we're or we're not the messaging? I guess I guess more like the rules that we're at. We're, we're that we're. Oh my god, can I speak? You can, <laughs> but you're just saying the same words over and over again. Um, and and I guess yeah, the rules that we want to outline to them especially with these increased populations coming down especially during covid especially all of these factors that have sort of dealt to this soup of despair for us um the last couple of years it's just it's really important to think about how we actually get to them the best um and if even if it's not the best it's just at all <laughs> how do we get them to actually pay attention to what we want them to pay attention to yeah, it's quite um, significant, something that we were talking about before. The Countryside Code was relaunched six days ago, um, designed to be much clearer um, to people um, and has involved some different strategies of being able to get that um, those messages out much further to different um, communities um, and involving those different communities and how that messaging comes across as well. Um, but we've seen through, you know, we've had quite a few episodes um, throughout throughout this run in the hive that deals with communications with people and diversity as well Uh, and there's quite a lot of resources now out there so if you're struggling to know how to do that the conservation optimism um, toolkit is a particularly good one obviously the episode that we did on engagement is a really quite nice one as well lucy in particular can can link really well into how to to tell stories or you know our own co-host here molly has been you know doing some of that work herself to to interpret you know some of those ways of trying to communicate people um with people better and obviously seeing if there's an impact from that as well so you can always contact us here at the hive if you wanted some some ideas on how to do that but i think it's just working smarter um and not necessarily harder but one of the key things i like about the messaging is when you are talking about a species and i think molly you did this for the brown-tailed moth as well not not the world's most easy to sell caterpillar um but it is but it's part of the ecosystem um you know somewhat you know possibly quite important part of the ecosystem for other species but in life all human beings have shared experiences of some sort and most of those we share with nature so life death and offspring and so those are three very easy things you can you can link to people and i mean if you don't have offspring then you probably were someone's offspring um so you know you can still you know when lucy talked about saying you know a turn is on a beach raising its babies there you know it's much better than telling people how many percentage turns have gone down in the last few decades it's it's just friendlier more linking with what people how they feel on site and getting a more uh, emotive response from them 
Yeah, and I think the whole, you know, you mentioned um, being inclusive as well and being able to reach the different types of people by using better language. You know, no one wants scientific jargon, not even the scientists want scientific jargon, because if you're walking along a nature reserve, you don't you don't need to learn all of the scientific jargon because you can go and do that when you get home. If you don't know it, you can go and Google it, you can go and research it. And that's part of the fun. And that's how you learn a bit more anyway, if you do it yourself and you've got that initiative. So it's just being able to just be inclusive with our messaging and, and all of that. You know, a lot of people might not have English as their first language. So don't be too punny, because if you're punny with your signs, then somebody might not get it and you might need a certain reference and all that sort of stuff. Um, just kind of think about what we can relate to each other. And like you said, relate with nature, which is that they're all intertwined. Um, and just, I guess, being simple, but effective. And, and that's all we can try and do. And yeah, just keep learning from each other as well. I think I've learned so much doing this podcast, just talking to all the different people we've spoken to. And just I've picked up little tips here and there that I've just tried to improve how I'm doing my work. And I guess that's all you can really ask for at the end of the day. Yeah, likewise, you know, the students that I'm I'm now teaching at college, their their work has changed tone entirely. Um, so when they're producing posters and leaflets, they don't talk about facts and figures and stats and declines. They now talk about stories mm -hmm. and there's colour and imagery and positivity in their work. And it's A, nicer to read through and B, more industry relevant nowadays. But I will end this um, this episode on a, on a rather naive point, though, which is a thread that's been running through um, almost every episode when you look at the the furloughing of staff in the national parks in America, which led to to issues with Lucy saying there needs to be more more resources um, with the diversity of the people that we bring into the, the conservation workforce is that signs are great and the more impactive, effective interpretation you have both on site and on social media is really crucial. And it's the best way to do with the little that we've got, but we do need more resource to get boots on the ground. Um, the public spending, on conservation in this country is now less than the turnover of an average Premier League football team. It's just not good enough. There is an increase in government messaging for people to use natural spaces more and more and more. There needs to be the resource to manage it because people do cause an impact, um, and whether that's on benches, on bin emptying, on footpath erosions, on needing more signage. All of those things require people um, to work on them and people to guide them and people to deal with those incidents where people really don't want to listen. You know, I was just reading the news today about people base jumping off Dirtle Door, climbing over, you know, over signage, even in spite of um, the, the issues that were caused there last year. So you still need those people um, out there to deal with those instances that do require a human impact. Um, and we can't do anything about that on, on the podcast, obviously, apart from put put the message out and, and saying that we're not naive enough to realize that you know better signage will be better and more effective but obviously molly i hope i'm not talking for you um but yeah would you would you agree with that yeah definitely and i i think it's it's outlined i've got a new um phrase that i'm going to start using this year to deal with with what's going on and it's in it's, it's my it's land yeah <laughs> go away uh, <laughs> um no it's it's if we do deplete these natural resources so much then eventually they're not going to be any use to wildlife which means they will not be protected for wildlife 
which means they're most likely going to be built upon or used for something else. Um, and so if we don't actually all take responsibility for our actions on these sites and not just fully depend upon the people, like you said, who are underfunded, absolutely work to the bone looking after these wonderful sites that we all love to use, no matter if you care about wildlife or not, everybody loves to go for a walk in these spaces for whatever reason, they, you know, whatever their personal reason is, then you need to think about it. If you're not going to give it the respect, then it won't be there. But it's simple as. And it might not It might not be that it's not there for you, but it, it might not be there for generations to come. It might not be there for your kids. You, want, you won't be able to build those memories like you had growing up with your parents and your family, your grandparents, going to these spaces like I have with, with the site I work on. You won't have that anymore because they just, simple as, won't exist. Um, and it definitely all comes down to funding and especially at this time when like you said we know that they have all these positive benefits for our health our mental our physical health and also just being enjoyable and nice places to be and relatively covid safe as they come um but you need to give the funding to them then because you're sending everybody there so it, it it's something needs to give and it's going to be the site and it's going to be the wildlife so let's not do that <laughs> there we go just don't do that yeah <laughs> what a what a good way to end um the negative behavior episode so there's lots of um lots of things to consider there but also a lot of hope as well and you can be saving species if you head out to a natural space today or this weekend and you look at the rules or the guidelines that are on site and you try and stick to them that way you'll be saving species literally just by staying to the path not camping not having a barbecue any of those things is probably the simplest way you are going to help save wildlife this week so enjoy <laughs> so we'll be back in two weeks time with the final episode of series one of the hive if you would like to find out more about our current run of episodes then you can check us out on so we've got facebook which is at the hive pod we have instagram which is the same at the hive pod and we have twitter which is at the hive pod one <laughs> um, and we've also got our wordpress site where you can check out our blog and our guests often pop some blogs in there to accompany their episodes so definitely worth checking out Cool. See you soon. Bye. Bye.